Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast... You can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. Today I am joined by historian and tour guide Christine Hughes-Patrone, who runs Number One London Tours and is the author of the book Waterloo Witness, which we're discussing today. Christine, great to have you on The Napoleon Assist. Folks might probably to be on again. Yeah, folks might remember you taking part in the Waterloo Remembered series this yes. time last year. Um, and since then, I've seen your, what I have to confess, is, is a brilliant book. Um, well, thank you. Well, it was the, the, the only book, actually, where I've reviewed a preprint version. And I've made a, a point of principle that I will never do it again on the basis that I really enjoyed this. But what if somebody puts a book in front of me that I don't enjoy? So now I won't do requests. Um, but that's basically because I've had such a good experience with yours that I'm fearful that I'm not going to be able to replicate it for somebody else. That's true. I, ne- I never thought of it from that end. I-, I want to start with an obvious question because I get it. I get why you've written this book and I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you've done. But a lot of our listeners will be aware that there are a lot of books on Waterloo. It's such a written about battle. So why write on Waterloo? I actually have not written on Waterloo and I would never presume to write about the Battle of Waterloo because I have no interest at all in military history. 
I mean, I don't know about strategy and the ins and outs and, you know, which regiment was there and who was commanding it and what the infantry did as opposed to, I, I don't know who else. But um, it's actually something that Madame Darblay, Fanny Burney wrote that sums the book up. And uh, her quote is this, I will write no account of these great events which have been detailed so many hundreds of times in so many hundreds of ways, as I have nothing new to offer upon them. I will simply write the narrative of my own history at that awful period. So I've been researching the Regency period and really all of the 19th century uh, for many, many years and my favorite source of information research are the diaries, letters, and journals of the day. I think they're invaluable in giving you a real feel for how people viewed things, how it affected their lives yeah, on a very social level and, and all different levels. So when I was reading, I believe it was, I was going back through Spencer Madden's letters he, he was the tutor to the Duke and Duchess of Richmond's children. And he went over to Brussels with them. And he, he left a, a fabulous, funny, really insightful memoir of that time. So it occurred to me, wait, you know, I heard this. I, I heard this exact event being, you know, recorded elsewhere. Let me go find that. And then that led me to something else. And I realized that if I went through all the usual suspects that I could go straight from Napoleon's first abdication through all the, the peace celebrations in London to uh, Wellington being made uh, ambassador to France, the Congress of Vienna, uh, Napoleon's return, the lead up to the battle and even the aftermath just by using their diaries, letters and journals, their entries. And then it occurred to me, well, if I was gonna write a book that was set during the Battle of Waterloo, I better know a whole lot more about the Battle of Waterloo than I do now, which was practically zilch. So then I thank God for Gareth Glover because then I started with the, his Waterloo archives, reading diaries, letters, journals of the same period, but from the military point of view. And I found that in addition to a lot of really interesting military data and day-to-day -day reviews and preparations and you know the whole armament thing, um, in addition to that, they also had really great daily life entries, you know, and you had several people saying how they, how they got to Bruges and then how they took the canal boat from there to Brussels and how fabulous it was. And, you know, at three o'clock, everybody went downstairs and had a fine meal with tablecloths and they had musicians and, you know, these things that if you're just going to if you're just going to look at it from a strictly military point of view, you'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many pages of this do I have to sit through? But if you're doing a social history thing, 
you know, it's kind of the reverse. Well, I really don't care where you made camp that night. Tell me what you ate and how you cooked it and, you know, that kind of thing. And that is exactly why I love this book, because it taps into something that as a military historian I know is there, but I've never sifted through in the way that you have done. Um, because the, the the social side just gets pushed aside, or if certainly for myself and a number of my colleagues as military historians, inverted commas, we kind of think about it through a, a military lens, if you will, yes. as opposed to your way of looking at it, which is really important in terms of giving people like myself a real kind of check and going, oh, but hang on, there's more that you can mine out of this. And I think particularly in the context of Waterloo, you know, that civilian story stops. It comes to a sort of screeching halt at the moment that the Duchess of Richmond's ball gets broken up. Why do you think that is the case? Why do you think we just kind of stop post the ball? I think because that's the end of the glamour. You know, every everything, that's the apex. And after that, everything gets kind of, you know, not nice. You know, you have the wounded, you have the dead, you have, uh, you know, things that are, are just beyond anybody's control anymore. The army, for the most part, leaves Brussels because they're now, you know, trying to quash whatever remnants of the French army are left and, and might regroup and, you know, try to have another battle. So now Brussels is, is left really in kind of a pitiful state because the wounded are there. Every house in Brussels, it doesn't matter who you are, what your social level is, you know, it's mandated that you have to take in the wounded, primarily the officers, because, you know, your common soldier went to the hospital or were left out in the field or whatever. But I mean, you know, it, it turns, the whole of Brussels pretty much turns into um, a hospital. And, you know, there's, nobody's looking for, let me amend that. Nobody but Caroline Lamb is looking for fun. So, you know, she shows up to nurse her brother, Freddie Ponsonby. And, you know, she just never stops reading to him until the doctor says to her, if you want him at all to get well, stop reading to him. You know, I mean, listening to that voice droning on and on and on. And then she says, oh, yeah, and, and the biggest source of amusement is making lint. Oh, you know, no balls. There's nothing to do. All I do is sit in the house with him. I wish he'd get better. So aside from her, everybody really had their noses to the grindstone and we're, we're doing their bit. So after that, what, what more is there to say about Brussels after that? I, I really think that's why it ends there. Yeah, as I mean, you there, say. There will never be another ball like that. that and what's, what's funny is, you know, Lady Grenville was there. The Richmonds were there. The Capels were there. Wellington by this time was there. Uh, and there were several other. The Cunninghams were there. So every night of the week, there would be an entertainment. It was like a, a rotating list of whose house we're going to. And actually, Wellington was supposed to have given a ball that night himself. And I, I don't know how the wires got crossed, but somebody said, 
well, the Duchess of Richmond thinks she's giving the ball and she's doing this, that, and the other thing. She's already, you know, and he said, well, fine, you know, I'll do it the next night or whatever. So there was a really good chance that we could have been saying the Duke of Wellington's ball. Can you imagine how that would have gone down in history if Napoleon (laughs) had crashed Wellington's own ball? You can just imagine there'd have been some some snarky little comment from Wellington, who was always good with a pithy little one-liner when he wanted to. Um, Yeah, the laundry. Yeah. um, (laughs) But you know what's funny is that we all know when Henry Percy delivered the Eagles to Prinny, Prinny was at the Bohm's house in the, the house they were renting in St. James's Square. And later on, I believe she said, I believe it was Stanhope that she said this to, I, I don't know, but somebody years afterward, she was in a grace and favor apartment at Hampton Court Palace. And somebody went there to interview her about that night. And she was still had her nose out of joint. That dirty Henry Percy showing up in the middle of my ball after all the arrangements I would, you think he'd have the decency to wait till the morning and not ruin my entertainment. And as soon as he came, everybody left and never was there a ball so ruined. Well, I beg to differ. <laughs> yes. I mean, she achieved immortality through that ball being ruined. So actually, there were there were two balls ruined by the Battle of Waterloo. Yes, yes. In two different countries. Yes, that's true. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yes. <laughs> See, if you go about the social history, it's a whole new way to, to look at events. Absolutely. And and this is, I guess this goes back to what I said about why I love this book. You've mentioned a few people already um, who were in Brussels at at this point. Set the scene of Brussels high society during this period, because there seems to have been a quite a substantial, almost expat community in the city at this time. By the time um, Napoleon abdicated the first time, this opened up the continent. The continent had been closed for almost a decade. There were no grand tours. There was no, you know, tourist trade. There was no real um, commerce. So suddenly it's, uh, the continent is open and people now begin their mad dash, whether they're going to buy things, to do business, to just, tour around and see Italy or whatever they want to do. But there's a big contingent of people that now have someplace to go to escape their creditors. You know, you had the Kappel family. Lady Kappel, Caroline Kappel is Paget slash Uxbridge slash Anglesey's sister. Her husband lost like hundreds of thousands of pounds at the gaming tables. They they really had to get out of town tootie sweetie. They were going to go two or three years sooner. It didn't work out. 
So once the borders open, once lockdown was lifted, <laughs> okay, everybody is now hot-footing it over to the continent. So you have the Capels, you have the Duke and Duchess of Richmond, who really were not doing well financially, not that he gambled, but his being Lord Lieutenant of Ireland had cost them a lot of money. The entertaining, the status that you had to maintain, you know, this all took money. Then you had the Creevies. Again, that's why they were there. And, you know, so many others, the Darblays, you know, Fanny Bernie. So a, a big reason that people came there to settle was to live, as they euphemistically put it, on the economical plan. And also, you know, it was the first fashionable city across the channel, but it was still convenient enough to the channel that if they had to go back to England, they could do it without a lot of trouble. And then as their friends and family kind of rotated because they all had a land somewhere, Austin, you know, Calais, somewhere in that area. So it wouldn't be a stretch for friends and family who are going elsewhere on the continent to make a detour and come and see that. And then you had, you know, other people rotating in that, that were in fact doing that, stopping on their way to somewhere else. But the, the people, the expat community that were there settled, that's basically why they went. I mean, I always wonder if there's an element of war tourism in 1815 as well, because you you see officers taking their wives out to Belgium in a way that they can't, from, from my reading of it, they can't do for the Peninsula War. And I'm talking obviously here about British officers. Do you see a kind of a war tourism? And, and if so, what do you think is the reason? No, because for that? they're... There couldn't have been a war tourism because this happens in 1814. So there is no war. Napoleon has been, you know, relegated to Elba. As far as everybody knows, it's over. The boundaries are open. Life is beginning to resume. Nobody has a clue that he's going to leave Elba or be able to raise an army or be a threat to anybody again. Nobody knows that at the time. The war, there's, war is not even on the horizon in any, but not even Wellington's eyes. You know, he's, he's now the British ambassador to France and he's doing nothing military. So people couldn't have gone there anticipating that there would be war. So do you not see an influx in don't forget, when, we don't know anything's happening. Even Wellington doesn't know anything happens until the Congress of Vienna. And that's underway quite a while before the messenger comes and says, hey, guess what? You know, and now he's got a, Wellington has to leave because he's trading him in his ambassadorship to be the head of the army again. Not only to be the head of the army, but to build an army from scratch, tootie sweetie. But when the news arrives, have I just effectively got this wrong and, and have historians kind of misconceived this, that there is this talk of how when 
the news does um, come out that the ponies returned, and, and obviously there is that decision to to continue the to restart, if you will, the war against Napoleon. The in the process of building up that army in Belgium, the way that the narrative is often written is that officers are, are more inclined to take their spouses with them. Is that just something that we've got wrong? Is there just no record of well, that being true? I didn't run into a lot of officers' wives when I was writing this book. I, I ran into Magdalene DeLacy, Delancey, and, and she came because they were on their honeymoon, basically. Um, Harry Smith and Juana. But she had been everywhere with him. Yeah. <clears throat> this wasn't a new thing for her. No, absolutely. Um, uh, as far as I know, who, what other officers' wives were there? I don't, I don't know. It wasn't like there was a huge contingent of them who came because, hey, you know, it's Vegas. It's Party City. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't find that at all. But then again, I'm not, you know, maybe you know about that because you learn more about it from the military angle. Yes, now, it's an maybe I'm wrong. But I don't, I don't think anybody came there for any reason thinking, I want a place on the ground. I want a, a grandstand seat of that battle. I don't think anybody was thinking about that until well into 1815, you know, when, when Wellington does leave the Congress and says, my headquarters is now going to be Brussels. Nobody before that could have, you know, could have known that that was going to happen down the line. And then people did, you know, there's people like Newman Smith that no matter how much I try to find out about him, you know, if, if you Google him, it says not much is known about Newman Smith, <laughs> but he shows up. <clears throat> with two of his friends because they want to see the battle. Um, Catherine Arden and, and some other people show up. Uh, Charlotte Eaton shows up again with her brother and another friend. But this is all just before the battle. So did people come prior? Yes, but I don't think they came as prior as we think they did. Oh, because they couldn't have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So you've mentioned a, a few names there. Um, and in a, I kind of want to dwell a little bit more on, on the Duchess of Richmond's ball just for a moment, because it has become sort of so significant within the Waterloo story. You know, you, you almost can't tell the story of Waterloo, even within within contemporary literature, without talking about Richmond's Bull. Why do you think it's become such a big deal? Is it just the, the Hollywood element of it? There's a whole romance built up about it. And, that, and I think one of the one of the most romantic bits, and, and let me find where I have this now. Okay, Caroline Lamb wrote this. Caroline Lamb, who wasn't at the ball, she wasn't even in Brussels at the time. But this is what she wrote. There never was such a ball, so fine and so sad. All the young men who appeared there shot dead a few days after. Well, in fact, 103 military men were invited to the ball. Many of them, like Delancey, never showed up because he was busy elsewhere. 
So let's roughly say 100. Out of those, 11 were killed. I see. So I, I think there's this perception that, you know, all 100 of them left the ballroom, still in their, you know, dress clothes, got right on their horses, charged out on the field and got killed. And, uh, you know, those famous paintings, in fact, one of them is going to be on the cover of my book, you know, where they're where they're taking a farewell of each other, the dashing officer on a horse and the, and the lady kissing him goodbye. Um, but it, it wasn't like that. In fact, by the time the Richmonds got to Brussels, all the fashionable houses in the park had been let. So they had to go somewhat outside of town and they rented a house that belonged to a glass coach maker. That's how he's listed as a glass coach maker because he made the fancy coaches that had a lot of glass. You know, think of Cinderella's carriage, like that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. So what the house was, was a house in the middle. And then they had two sides to it, like two big annexes either side. One was his coach building workshop. And one, one had been his showroom. They were empty now. In fact, one of them, the Duchess made into like a playroom slash classroom for the kids. So I'm bringing this up because this is what she had to work with for the night of the ball or any other ball she gave the, you know, the other 26 weeks previously. So it wasn't this grand glittering Buckingham Palace-esque place to begin with. So that's not right. You know, the way you see it and it's all, you know, marble and gilt and chandeliers. No, it wasn't like that. In fact, Georgie Lennox, her daughter, says she remembers there being trellis wallpaper with little pink roses on it in that room. But it wasn't a sweeping, glittering, fancy thing to begin with. It probably looked good in in candlelight with the musicians and the Highlanders and all that. But that's the first fallacy. And then that everybody who left that ball went directly to their death. That's another fallacy. And then then you have the thing where, you know, um, Napoleon humbugged me by God. So, you know, and, and the Duke of Richmond with his map So there's all this legend and myth, and it's grown to be a lot bigger than it ever was. And I'm kind of glad it did because it's, you know, the symbol of that era, really. And you talked a lot about who's there or not there and who doesn't, doesn't die on the, the military side. Who's there on the civilian side? What do we know about the families that were in attendance? You had the Creevies and the Miss Ords, his stepdaughters, they were there. Um, Lady Charlotte Greville, Frances Wedderburn Webster and her husband, the Capels, Lady Alvinley and the Miss Ardens, Mrs. Wellesley Pole, 
um, William's wife, uh, Lady and Miss Sutton, the Creevies, Countess of Waldegrave, Viscountess Howarden, Countess Mount Norris, who's Francis Wedderburn Webster's mother, and who will go on to tour the battlefield and, and spear skulls with her parasol. <laughs> Sir Sidney and Lady Smith, Lord and Lady Seymour, Mr. and Mrs. Greathead, and then a whole bunch of Comtes and Comtesses that I'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce their names. But there was, you know, everybody and everybody who was resident in Brussels would have been asked, you know, in their social strata. So how do they all- The usual suspects, in other words. Sure. So how do they all respond to news of the French invasion? Because Brussels, for folks who know the geography, you know, it's not far from the, no. the Belgian border. You know, it's two days, probably, fast march, maybe even a little bit less. You know, is there this mass exodus or is there sort of a, a confidence that the Anglo-Dutch-Prussian alliance is going to do its job? You know, some people are convinced that Wellington's going to win the day and we have nothing to worry about. Um, some people are getting a little antsy now. But the thing that happens is from that, from that moment on, everybody starts moving. You know, Wellington has said, as soon as I leave the ball, here's the orders, get them out to everybody. Actually, let me back up because he had started, you know, that's why Delancey was not at the ball. Because he and the other ADCs were writing out dispatches and orders and, and troop movements and having them delivered to all the different heads of the regiments. So a lot of people had already moved out, but as soon as the ball was over, like from two o'clock in the morning on, the bagpipes start going and the Highlanders assemble and everybody just stands around. It's, you could hear a pin drop other than the music. You know, it was such a, a, a sight, you, you couldn't believe it. This is happening in front of our eyes and they move off. And then you have another regiment right behind and they assemble and they move off and people are saying, row, this, this, is, this is serious. And from that, that moment on, they really don't have any news because everybody's everybody in an official capacity practically is gone. So there's no central hub, you know, go down to headquarters and see what they're hearing. Or So it's, it all becomes from this point on supposition and gossip. And a lot of times, even Wellington, they got their news from Wellington because Wellington was writing to people in Brussels and having, having messages delivered like to Francis Wedderburn Webster. Now people have made this whole big thing, oh, that's proof that they were having an affair. You know, he wrote to her from the battlefield. What does that tell you? What it, it tells me that her father, Lord Mount Norris, who Wellington knew from his Ireland days, was really an invalid, as was Mrs. Creevy. It, it wouldn't have been easy for them to be moved. 
So he did write to her and he said, don't panic. I don't think there's any reason for you to rush and move your father. Let, let her, everything just stay the way it is. And I'll let you know if I think that's going to change. And he also wrote to the Duchess of Richmond and he wrote to, you know, various other people who he knew had a stake in, you know, not just their lives, but the people who they were responsible for. You know, the Duchess had 13 kids, never mind an invalid father. So, you know, that, that's another thing. If you just look at the military and don't go for the underlying, well, why did he write to her? Well, that's why. Oh, it all makes sense now. You mean they weren't having an affair? I doubt it because she was seven months pregnant. Mm. What do you think? That's uh, <laughs> that's a telling point, isn't it? And yes, as you say, if you don't understand some of the, the bigger pictures, this is how you, you can miss these things. And and then the, the whole kind of, the perceptions become consolidated, don't they? Because it's based on a supposition without knowing the, the fuller context. Uh, and that's how we get, the, the incorrect interpretations forming. Yes. I mean, what do those who stay do with their time? Basically, as, as Fanny Burney wrote, all the social mores kind of fell apart. Nobody cared what strata of the population you were from. Nobody cared that we had been introduced, we hadn't been introduced. Everybody, regardless of your social station, everybody asked everybody else they saw, have you heard anything? Do you know anything? What's going on? People were at their open windows or they were in their doorways or like Creevy, they kept walking the town, seeing if they'll meet anybody who knows anything at all. So that's what it was. And some people said, you know, some of the officers like Delancey, he sent his wife to Antwerp. And several other officers whose names I haven't found out, but um, Magdalene says that other officers' wives were also, you know, in her carriage. So we know that that happened. And then you have things happening like, you know, the lesser battles. The Duke of uh, Brunswick gets, gets killed. Blucher gets, you know, hurt and off his horse and Wellington has to retreat after Linnae and, and that gets misinterpreted. You know, he, he has to retreat because Blucher is not near enough yet. It, it doesn't make any strategical sense for him to forge on. So people hear that and say, the British are retreating. Why are they, are, are we defeated? Should we run? Are the French gonna be at the gates any minute? So, you know, everything's catch as catch can and everybody interprets it in a different way. Yeah, as you say, the rumor mill in the capital just sort of goes wild, doesn't it, over the, the course of the campaign. Talk us about, Absolutely. talk us through sort of how the panic really sets in, because you, you set this up really nicely about how, if they're getting anything, they're getting the barest snippets of half a sentence. Yeah, so, and, okay, so. And, and then they blow it all out of proportion. So talk us through the, the panic, because I know there are some really um, vivid accounts of people really starting to, to fear for their lives. 
Well, let me set the scene for you. The, the rumor mill and the, the setting aside of typical social mores is, is interesting to me from a social historian uh, point of view. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Charlotte Eaton, this, this is the night of the Duchess of Richmond's ball. She and her brother and sister and a friend had come there, as you say, as tourists. They're in the hotel in Brussels. They have friends who are there. The friends go out. The sis her sister and brother go out. So she's, she's alone in the hotel room in Brussels, is my point. So she writes this. My brother and sister went to call upon Mrs. H, who they were impatient to see. They had not gone many minutes when Sir Neil Cam Campbell sent up to ask if I would admit him. I made no objection. So in he came looking magnificent in a full dress uniform covered with crosses, clasps, orders and medals. Behold me then, tete a tete with this splendid bow in my own room between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. In England, it would have been extraordinary enough to be sure, but in Brussels, it was nothing. It was impossible to receive him or anybody else in any other place than a bedroom. For the Hotel de Flandre was entirely composed of bedrooms, all of which were occupied. Without discomposing myself about the matter, therefore, I gave Sir Neil Campbell some tea and we had a long chat together. He too had been dining with the Duke of Wellington and had been present when these important dispatches arrived. And from him, I heard a reputation of all that Major Wiley had told us with the alarming addition that the French were said to be upwards of 100,000 strong and that Napoleon himself was at the head of the army. It seemed quite incredible that so large an army could have formed, advanced, and even attacked Marshal Blucher without his having any knowledge of their movements. And even if their force was very superior to ours, I felt confident that they would meet with a very different reception from that which, the, which people expected. And that Napoleon, with every advantage on his side, would not find the defeat of an English army quite so easy a thing in practice as he had always seemed to consider it in theory. 
Having settled this point much to our mutual satisfaction, Sir Neil Campbell went away. My brother and sister returned and we went to bed. So, you know, there's people like Creevy who hardly slept and walked the streets. And then there are the people who are pretty much resigned. You know, whatever is going to happen, is going to happen. We can't change it. And then you had the people like um, Madame Darvley and, and a lot of the other people who wanted to get out of town. So once it was clear that, you know, war was imminent, this is the real thing. You, you had the contingent of people who went immediately to Antwerp and got out of town. And Catherine Arden wrote that orders had been issued by the Duke for all baggage to be sent from the army through this town and for the wounded, if possible, to be moved from it. All this looked so like retreating on the town that we were told we must have horses ready and everything prepared to go at an instant's notice, which accordingly we commenced doing. And from that hour, four o'clock till eight o'clock in the morning, Sunday, when we were fairly in Antwerp, were, I hope, the most harassing 16 hours I will ever pass. From that time, the baggage wagons passed in such quick succession that they formed cavalcades through the town as not only those who were ordered to go, but those who desired to stay with the army passed through, a general panic having seized all the officers' servants, by which means many have lost all they had and everybody is minus something. You know, the, the, all of the, ro the road to Waterloo, the road north to Antwerp, you know, all the tributaries, everything is clogged up now. Some people want to get in, some people want to get out. Some people are listening to rumor and thinking, you know, leaving everything there because the French are at their heels. I mean, I can't tell you how many accounts, officers accounts after the battle, you know, that they had to wear the same clothes for five days until they finally found their baggage or some people never found their baggage. Uh, Wellington's dispatch box with all his letters went missing. And as far as we know, it's never been found. But, you know, it was just total chaos and confusion. I think what I, I particularly want to emphasize, having read your book, is that the beauty of what you've done is that you've let these accounts speak for themselves, just as you did then. So people have actually, just by listening to this, got a really good sense of your style as a storyteller, which is what I enjoyed about this. Um, and I hasten to add that I am not getting a percentage of the, uh, the commission <laughs> on this. Um, I was just really struck when I read this about how well it weaves together and, and how vivid and sort of visceral these accounts are to give you, you know, that different perspective. After like chapter four, when we really, you know, it really picks up pace, I didn't have to put the author's voice anywhere. It, it just, all these accounts just carried it through and ran one to the other and told the whole story. Beautifully, I think. And I say that because, not because I wrote the book, because I really didn't write the book. You know, I, I truly feel that way. 
I just put it in all these published accounts in a different form. And hopefully I allow people to, to see the whole scope of who was on the ground then. You know, and all these different people had different objectives, different fears, different desires, different hopes. People were in love. People were looking to make money. People were looking to protect their children. People were, you know, anything you could imagine. I, I think that's a very brave step to take, though, as a historian when you're writing, to just stand back and let the, the, the people who were there on the ground speak for themselves. I think very often there's that temptation to, to summarize, to put our own stance on things, and, and you, you don't do that. You just say, look, here is what they said, read it for yourself. And I think it's a, a great way of doing things. Well, yes. I mean, any, whatever they said is a thousand times more important and more informative than anything I could say, especially since, to be honest, I don't know that much about the, the military element of the Battle of Waterloo. And, you know, I will never, I'll keep going to Wellington conferences, I'll keep going to all the history conferences, and I will maintain till the day I die, I don't know anything about the actual Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> I, I have no problem admitting that. I know what I know, and that's, that's not it. I think that that's also a testament, though, to the skill of yourself as a historian, because far too many, this is sounding like I'm, I'm just kind of I put this into you together to, to flatter you it wasn't the intention but the it I'm not going to stop you <laughs> it takes a certain type of individual to recognize what their limitations are and to know what the best ways are to to let other material do the heavy lifting in in the right moments um so so yeah I mean fair play to you for having that admission but also it takes skill to to have that judgment. And that's why I recommended this book so highly um, in the beginning. I, I want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of Waterloo because I find that really interesting. And we've touched on this a little bit already in relation to the wounded because the grand place in the center of the city effectively becomes an open air hospital. Yes. And the civilians, especially the women, it's so it seems from the military accounts at least, to come out in force to tend to the wounded on both sides. Why do you think there's such a large scale response from the locals? Is it like you said earlier that all of the, the buildings are requisitioned so there's no choice or is there a I, I genuine think because desire? they lived through it. You know, they're, they're right there. It, it would be, I suppose it's something like 9-11. You know, if, if somebody got injured and, and showed up at your house a block away, would you say no? You know, it's that immediacy. Yes, Wellington sent orders that everybody's to take people in if they have room and, and people went above and beyond. You know, they, they would take all the furniture out of the bottom floor of their house and put it in their coach house and then set up some kind of makeshift beds and how many people they could fit in, they'd do it. You know, they tended them night and day. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's immediate because you're right there. You lived up, to, you live through the buildup. You live through the deployment. You live through the three days of listening to the cannons, you know, from the ramparts. 
And during this whole time, because you had three battles, so you had wounded coming in, you had killed coming in, you had prisoners coming in. There's no way that you could at the end of it say, oh, okay, well, we're done now. You know, it's, it's all part and parcel of the same thing is what I think. I mean, it's interesting as well that they don't discriminate by nationality. You know, they're as inclined to support the, the allied wounded as they are to support the French. Is that a result of the occupation, do you think? Probably, but I, I, you know, I think by that time, I guess they, they had this, this sense of everybody's fighting for what they believe in. And, you know, it was so over the top, the French would go back to Napoleon to begin with. And then I think there was a sense that people got caught up in this. Everybody was caught up in this now. Nobody really wanted to be there. Nobody by the end knew what they were fighting for anymore. You know, the Imperial Guard were like robots. You know, really at the end, they wouldn't stop coming. And, and there's accounts where, you know, your, your general foot soldier would leave records saying, we really couldn't believe that they just kept coming. You know, that they saw what was happening to their comrades who came before them, and yet they didn't turn around and, and leave. They just kept coming. You know, eventually, yes, they did leave. But there were so many instances of bravery on both sides. And then the wounded got, you know, removed from the field, sometime brought to Brussels, sometimes to Waterloo, sometimes elsewhere. But by the time the battle was over, people had seen all this. And they'd seen even, the, even though they started as their enemy, now they were wounded. Now they were, you know, as confused as they were. And without hope in a lot of places, you know, in a lot of instances, because there wasn't a lot of hope unless you were Fitzroy Somerset or, you know, the Marquess of Anglesey. You know, not everybody got that kind of care. Not everybody got off the battlefield. Some people were there three or four days later, you know, begging people, just shoot me. Is there any evidence of a, a public health knock-on from that? I mean, I know kind of thinking about public health is very topical at the moment, isn't it? But in terms of the, the entire city being turned to a large extent into a hospital, inevitably due to the nature of the time and the surgical techniques, you get huge, um, huge instances of, of infection. One of, the Kappel's, one of the Kappel sisters wrote about that, that they, you know, they made a point to get all the dead, you know, as people died, as the wounded died, to get them out of the city gates, out of the walls and away from town and buried as soon as possible. I, I don't believe there was some big rash of, you know, pestilent fever or anything, but they were certainly aware of it. And what do we know about the trips that civilians make to the battlefield? Because presumably some go to find loved ones that uh, Joanna Smith is the famous example there. Do some sort of go just to see the site or out of a, a morbid fascination or is there something else going on there? No, they, well, there were people like, um, in fact, his name is Hay. 
last name is Hay. And he was a retired soldier whose brother, and I'm not even going to tell you that I know his name without looking at the notes, but there were three Hays. There was the, the young Hay, the coronet who was killed, you know, right after the Duchess of Richmond's ball. And then there was a, a Colonel Hay. And then there was this guy who was retired, who went looking for his brother, the Colonel Hay. But he never found him, is my, is my point. And they never found young Carnet Hay either. They never found his body. And then there were people, officers, and I don't know off the top of my head, um, who were killed, who were buried, and who their Batman or whoever made a concerted effort to mark the spot so that they'd know where they were. And several were dug up afterwards and returned to England. But, you know, not everybody was that lucky. And there was also another social point. There were a couple of firms in England that cashed in on this whole Waterloo. You know, everybody knows the story of the Waterloo teeth. But there were funeral companies who cashed in. You know, if you lost somebody at Waterloo, we will go with a lead line coffin. We will go pick up your loved one and bring him back. And, you know, this whole thing. And a lot of people did that. But, you know, a lot of people didn't know where where their loved ones had fallen either. So. Did people go and search the battlefield? Absolutely. You know, the, I've seen the firsthand accounts. And I don't think anybody ran out. I don't think any civilians ran out, you know, the next day. But it didn't take too much longer before they did start going. And the, the accounts of it, of what the field looked like, uh, are just staggering from, from like two days after till two months after. It was still just packed. The field was packed with caresses. And, you know, uh, weapons and cannons and dead horses and dead men. And I mean, everything you can think of. But the one the one interesting thing to me, what, what interested me is various accounts mention how white the field was, how covered with paper the field was. And if you think about it, it's like the white fields of Waterloo. Because every French soldier, supposedly, had some kind of a, a regimental book that he had to keep with him. And he had to say where he was, what he'd done. It was like a record book that mandatory you had to have. And there was a lot of pages in it. Um, then there were manuals dispatches, letters home, paper that you hadn't used, blank, blank paper that hadn't been used yet, maps, maps, orders. I mean, think about all the paper. You know, just naturally in that era, because there were no telegraphs or telephones or whatever else. That was it. Everything that you wanted to communicate, personal or military or official was on paper. And I just found it so interesting that men and women, civilians and military, regardless, independently 
they mention how the field was covered with paper. Bibles, a lot of people had Bibles and, and other kind of reading matter with them. Because when you said paper, I thought, what is that, cartridge paper? But yeah, I've never thought of that before. And it's, you know, it's not just one or two people that recorded that. Several people. And like I said, from all different classes, they all remarked upon that. And I thought that was really telling because it, that, it gives you the human side of the battle. You know, there, there was one foot soldier who during the, the height of the battle, people were falling all around him or really so he supposed because he could hardly see, you know, more than two men on his left and further than two men on his right. And he said, in the middle of all this, we're marching forward and I see a dead calico cat. And it, you know, it like brought it, all these people dying around him. Well, you know, we're in a battle, but that really touched him that that poor cat had died. And that's the kind of thing that you can't, you can't get from a dry history of anything. But when you, when you read words like that, that really bring it home, what, what this guy was actually thinking and feeling on the battlefield, during the battle, as all this was craziness was going on. What are your thoughts? What are your fears? You know, that's, that's what grips and interests me. The real stories. You know, and poor Juana Smith, when she thinks Harry's dead. And poor Magdalene De Delancey, he's dead, he's not dead, he's wounded, he may be dead. Oh my God, can you imagine in the space of 24 hours, her, uh, her emotions? And Madame Darley trying to get to the wharf in, in Belgium so that they can get the barge and go. Nope, there's nothing available. Wellington had every barge, every cart, every horse, every carriage, every everything was, you know, confiscated for use by the army. But, you know, if you listen to her tell it, it's a thousand times more powerful than me telling you right now about it and condensing it. You know, it takes, it takes a lot to read. You know, well, he was in the 51st Regiment and they went from here to there. That takes a paragraph. If you read his account, it could be three pages. But there's so much more to it. Absolutely. I mean, something else that we touched upon earlier was um, how some of the civilians responded. I remember you talking about the lady who... Um, starts spearing the skulls with her, her parasol. It, was there a sense that the battlefield wasn't an appropriate place for women because they would have seen the dead and because of the social attitudes of the time or was that just not a concern? You know, it's very strange because keep in mind that until like, almost right up to the Edwardian era, women never went to funerals. It just wasn't done. You know, you could mourn, you could go to the church, you could go to the wake, whatever, but you, they really never went to the actual burial, the graveyard. And here, you know, as I said, the social mores just kind of fell away. And people did things they would never do 
otherwise. You know, like um, Charlotte Eaton, who had, you know, Colonel Wiley up there in her, her room or at the hotel with her. People talking to people they don't know. People helping people they don't know. But yeah, so here's Lady, Lady Caroline Lamb is still in Brussels with poor wounded, her brother, Freddie, which is another story. I mean, that poor guy who gets, he gets lanced in both arms. He's still on his horse somehow. He gets hit over the back and finally actually falls off his horse. He gets run over you know, stampeded, not just one horse, the whole regiment goes over him. He's laying there, he can't use his arms, they're both wounded. He gets pickpocketed twice. He lays out there all night long. And after this, this whole horrible story, he's faced with her reading to him nonstop. The guy couldn't catch a break. So anyway, Here's, here's from the lips of Caroline Lamb, and she's writing to her mother-in-law, the Viscountess Melbourne. The great amusement at Brussels, indeed the only one except visiting the sick, is to make large parties and go to the field of battle and pick up a skull or a grape shot, grape shot or an old shoe or a letter, etc., and bring it home. William has been, I shall not go unless when Fred Ponsonby gets better, et cetera, and goes with me. There is a great affectation here of making lint, et cetera, and bandages. But where is there not some? At least it is an, it is an innocent amusement. The Prince of Orange inquired much after all his acquaintances. He suffers a great deal, but bears it well. Next door to us has a Colonel Millar, very patient, but dreadfully wounded. Lady Cunningham is here, Lady C. Greville, Lady D. Hamilton, Lady Smith, Lady Frances Somerset, Lady Frances Webster, most affected. Lady Mount Morris, who struck her parasol yesterday into a skull at Waterloo. Just out for a day's fun. No. I don't know. No, it's a, now this is this account is undated, Caroline's, but I, I think she gets there at least a week afterwards. So we would hope that by the time the ladies went, you know, most of the dead had been moved. But I don't think it would have mattered, to tell you the truth. No. It was just, you know, it was just history. And yeah. you know, it all the people, the, the various accounts, we went to the field and I got a curse and, and um, you know, Bob got a this and we bought this off of this one. And, and it just goes on and on the, how the field was plundered of all, all kinds of things. And it's so rare nowadays that anything comes up for auction, you know, that came from the field of Waterloo. And you can't help but wonder where is all that stuff? Yeah, or at least things, I wonder. <laughs> one of those things lost in the mists of time. And we also know that, you know, these, these are different times. People have a different attitude to death. And Tony Pollard's been doing some really interesting work about the fact that the, the 
the burial pits were subsequently plundered for bone to be used uh, to be ground up and used as fertilizer in England. That's, you know, when you read the accounts and you, you get this picture in your head of the mass of people and horses and items and, you know, and they didn't have any sanitary way to get rid of them. Everything was even either buried in pits or burnt. The horses were burnt. Um, but but the, just the scope of it. So when you watch all these episodes of Waterloo Uncovered, you're like, what? How are they not finding not even people, but things, horses, something? And they, they found that one soldier a couple of years ago, and that was it. Like there, there was a big pit just off the battlefield, you know, that, that one field hospital that they kind of dragged everybody through and cut off their arm or leg or whatever, and then sent them on. So all those limbs were put in a pit some, somewhere near there. That's not found. Even, okay, it's 200 years and a lot of that field is planted, was planted, is planted, still being planted. So you had tractors for 200 years, you know, every, every season turning up the, but still you'd think there would be more buttons, bullets, weapons, something, wouldn't you? I just yeah, find it awesome. odd that it there's awesome. nothing. But then it is one of the most picked over battlefields, isn't it? Because of, because of its fame. Christine, this has been absolutely brilliant. Your passion for this has, has come through as I knew it would do. Um, remind people about the book, which by the time this goes out will be hopefully on actual bookshelves, not just available online, and where they can get it from. It's being published by Penn and Sword. It's called Waterloo Witnesses, Military and Civilian Accounts of the 1850 cam Campaign. Um, it should be on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere, hopefully. Fantastic. And I know you're planning a battlefield tour with Gareth, Gareth Glover. Yes. In the, in the next, um, in the following year. Yes, September 2022. Um, and again, it's going to be a reflection of both of our books. You know, it will be the social side of the Battle of Waterloo and um, guided tours of the battlefield. So I will be doing the social history side and Gareth will have his expertise actually taking us on to the, to the battlefields, but it'll be a new way to research Waterloo. That, that I can guarantee. And where can people find out more about that? Um, it's number one London tours, all spelled out, .com. And it's uh, the tour website is up and ready to take uh, guests in September, 2022. Fantastic. I'll post a link in the description for folks who want to follow up on that. Thanks Thank very much you. for joining me, Christine. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Zach. Always a pleasure. That was Christine Hughes-Patrone joining me to talk about her book, Waterloo Witnesses, which is available to order online now from Pen and Sword. You can find Christine on Twitter at number one London. If you've been inspired to read further on the ideas in this episode, don't run off to Amazon. 
I have an alternative suggestion. Why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleonicist bookshop? Click the link in the description and you'll find a vast range of titles that will be of interest. And in the process, independent booksellers get a cut and the Napoleonicist also gets a cut. So there are many who benefit. I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those who don't want to make a regular contribution, but do want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist at Kofi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of the tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks, including a discount code at Pen and Sword, so be sure to check the link in the description for details. A particular thanks to my Commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tapner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Jamie Kingston, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. Join me in just a few days' time when I'll be kicking off another themed month, the first voted for by my Commander patrons focusing on the Duke of Wellington. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.